family. I'm Jacob Yarbrough, and, and I serve as an elder here at Calvary Bible Church. And uh, for our scripture reading today, I'll be reading from uh, the passages of Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and also Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through uh, 17. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version, 1995, and I invite you to follow along as, as I read. So Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Aphrodites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women and his wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was left was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return to the land, from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And then again in Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son, then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And thus says the Lord. Amen. But allow me to begin with some reminders this morning that we believe the Bible is truth. We believe God is real, that he is good, that he is trustworthy, and we believe Jesus is the Son, the Redeemer, and the Savior of all. And all God's people say, thank you. Well, today we begin the book of Ruth. We will spend the remaining weeks of 2022. I want to make sure I got that year right. So we're going to spend the rest of this year unpacking this book, diving in to the story, and then in January of 2023, to kind of give you an idea of what's coming down the road, in January 2023, we're going to spend that month uh, on systematic theology, really understanding doctrine, and particularly we're going to be talking about bibliology, how is the Bible put together, why do we believe it's inspired, how can we understand it, and all that kind of good stuff. And then after systematic theology in January, so all the super nerds in the room like me, can, we'll make sure you won't be here in January. Okay, so then what we'll do, probably in the month of February, we're going to unpack the book of Colossians. Now Colossians is kind of like the red-headed stepchild of Ephesians. But if you've ever read it, or at least recently, you will know that it stands on its own. I mean, verse 13 of chapter 1 alone says this, For the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. I mean, 
doctrine. That is just wonderful. So, anyway, so that's what's coming down the pike. And so, for the rest of this year, we're going to be unpacking the story of Ruth. Kind of give you an idea of what we're going to do today. We're going to really unpack the story. So, for one week, we're just going to go through all of the book, all four chapters, and I'm going to read it all to you today. Just kidding. Um, so, we're not going to do that. So, I'm going to read all the chapters for today and then we're going to unpack a character each week for the next four weeks until we close out this book on the last Sunday of December before Christmas. The book of Ruth is a story about common people who face an uncommon grief. It is a story of redemption. It is a story of faithfulness, faith, and determination. It is a story of people placing others above themselves And it is a story that foreshadows the arrival of the Messiah. But how do I want you to use this book? You know, one of the things that you have to kind of talk about and think about as a preacher is how do you want people to really listen and use this book? And for lack of a better illustration, I want you to use the book like this. Okay, how many of you have ever had a mosquito in your house before? Okay. Well, so that really annoys me. Anybody else can relate to that? Because you know it's hunting for you, okay? So what you do with that mosquito is when it gets close by, you just kind of, what you just smack it dead, right? That's kind of what I want you to do with the book of Ruth. That sounds weird. But as I talk about the book of Ruth, as I talk about different characters and different principles, I'm going to share four principles today. What I want you to do is kind of grab on to one of those. That is for me. That's what I want to remember. That is what I want to meditate on. So that is kind of what I encourage you to do with this book as we go through it, through principles that we see. But why are we studying this book? Why are we unpacking the book of Ruth? Well, reason number one is the book of Ruth foreshadows Christmas. You may or may not know this, but the reason Jesus is born in a little town called Bethlehem is because of the book of Ruth. Because of this story, the Savior of the world is confirmed in Micah 5.2, and he is born in a little town called Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. But why else are we studying the book of Ruth? Reason number two is because... Just like Christmas, the book of Ruth is a story of redemption as God sent and appointed Boaz to be Ruth's kinsman redeemer. So God the Father sent his son to redeem us from our sin. So this story is a story of redemption. And who is this book for? The book of Ruth is for all of us. Because I guarantee you today... That as we study this book for the next five weeks, you can identify with one of the characters. Some of us here today are Naomi. We're needing redemption. We're needing help from the Lord. Some of us here today are Ruth. The name of Ruth means companion or friend. That some of us here today need to be a friend to a Naomi in our life. And then some of us here today are Boaz. Boaz means fleetness. Okay? And we'll talk about quickness. He is the driver of redemption. Some of us here today need to be the hands and feet of Jesus to redeem those in our life. The book of Ruth shows how God gently and imperceptibly restores the lost and salves the caustic soul. Another scholar says the book of Ruth is a lily pad in a stagnant pool or a diamond on a black cloth. But another one describes this book as a mosaic, pieced together 
event after event to create a picture of God's redemption and love. To those who wait, who seek refuge under God's wings, who do the right thing, leaving the results to God, will one day stare back at the sunset of their lives and see God's colorful redemption, if not on this side of heaven, on that side of eternity. So that is kind of what we're doing, the plan, why, all that kind of good stuff, what I hope you to get out of it. And so that is really what we plan to do over the next five weeks, and we will wrap it up on December 18th. And uh, before we enter the story, let us pray, and then we will begin. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this amazing story of redemption, of this woman named Naomi who encounters a very difficult circumstance in her life and how you have put people around her to redeem her and to care for her and how you show to all of us your love and redemption despite our circumstances. And I pray for this morning that we would enjoy the story, but Lord, that we would grab onto different principles and different ideas that we see in the scripture that uh, speak to our heart and mind. And we lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we enter the story, and it begins in the time of Judges. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 says this, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. Now the setting of our story is long ago. In the story, the land of the judges, if you're familiar with that phrase right here, now it came about in the days when the judges governed. This is a 400-year period, 3,200 years ago, in between Joshua and the conquest in the book of Joshua, and in between Saul and his uh, appointment, the one who God called, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So this period of the judges is about a 400-year period. And if you can put it in a word, uh, the time of the judges was a time of complete wickedness. If you ever really want to see... If, you, if you're convinced that the debauchery of man is a new thing, okay, if you're convinced that mankind is really, really broken today, okay, and not like it was 3,200 years ago, just read the book of Judges, amen? If you ever read that, there's some crazy stories in the book of Judges because what we see in a word, that book can be summarized in one word. It is wickedness or debauchery or just Evil And the, the nation of Israel in the book of Judges have one fatal flaw. That they what? That they turn to other gods. Then when God doesn't give them what they want, what do they do? They turn to the Asheroth poles or the Baal. Um, the temptation in all of our hearts has not changed. When God doesn't give us what we want... When God doesn't give us what we expect, what do we do? Our temptation is to turn to other gods, turn to work, or turn to other things that we place up as an idol in our lives to see if that will satisfy. But when the nation of Israel decides to do that in the book of Judges, what happens? If you know the story, the nation of Israel uh, would, would rebel against the Lord. They'll bow down before other gods. And then what does God the Father or God do? He sends in oppressors, right? And then the nation of Israel says, Uncle, enough is enough. I'll repent of my sin. I'm sorry for what I did. And then the Lord would appoint a judge to free them from that oppression. 
And then they would rejoice, and then they would serve the Lord for a time, and then what would happen again? Then they would begin to bow down to other gods, and then the Lord would send another oppressor, and so forth and so on. I mean, it's like when you read the book of Judges, it's like one big cycle that repeats itself over and over and over again. But in this time, in the book, in the time where the judges govern, we see a story of a family. That in the midst of this evil period of Israel in the little town called Bethlehem, meaning the house of bread, there is no bread. Notice again in verse 1, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. So we see in verse 2, it begins to introduce to us the family that we see in the land of Bethlehem. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech, literally in the Hebrew, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. The name of Elimelech is a Hebrew, it's actually a, it's actually a combination of words in Hebrew. El means God, E means my, and Melech means king. So you have a man that is my God is king. So what does that show you about him? It tells me initially that he probably is a righteous man, or at least he grew up in a righteous family, because here is a man named Elimelech, where it says, my God is king, and then he has a wife named Naomi, and the Hebrew word for Naomi means to be pleasant, means to be joyful. So you have this family, and by every indication, it is a good family. It is a righteous family. Elimelech, my God is king, and his wife is pleasant or delight. Their life started off together with great promise, but then the famine in the land, and they decided to move to a country named Moab. And then if you notice there, we don't catch um, in English a lot of things, which is because we don't speak Hebrew. But if you notice, they have two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Okay, Malon and Kilion in the Hebrew means weak and sickly. Okay, <laughs> okay. so could you even imagine you, your name being weak, okay? Uh, your mother must have hated you if they, she called you weak or sickly, okay? We don't know the circumstances for why Naomi and Elimelech named their son Malon and Kilion. Maybe at birth there was trials or difficulty, or maybe they just renamed their sons Malon and Kilion at 2 a.m. in the morning during those difficult days. I would imagine all parents in the room thought about renaming their children uh, a disparaging term when they were rocking them at 3 a.m. Um, but we see Malon and Kilion, weak and sickly, and then what happens in verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So here we see the setting of our story in verses 1, through 1 and 2, but here we begin to see the conflict, the central conflict of the story. That number one, that Elimelech, this righteous man, the man whose name means my God is king, he passes away and then she is left with her two sons probably to care for because her name is weak and sickly. So I would imagine Naomi had her hands full. Okay, I don't know. But here she is. But at least, you know, at least she has her two sons. The two sons that God has granted to her. And then what happens in verse 4? They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, meaning neck, literally. 
Man. Uh, and the other name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there for about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the women were bereft of their two children and her husband. So her husband passes away. She's left with Malon and Kilion. But then the situation grows worse. Weak and sickly die. I mean, could you imagine going to, you're, you're a Jew living in the land of Moab, okay? And could you imagine introducing your children like that? Okay, this is my son weak and this is my son sickly, okay? I imagine they looked at her cross-eyed, okay? Why would you name your children that? But clearly they are, have bad health for whatever reason. And Malon and Kilion die, but then they marry Moabite women. I just, for just a second, so I'm teaching a class called hermeneutics, and one of the things that we should observe is the atmosphere, the feelings of the character. How do you feel, how do you think Naomi is feeling? She has moved to a foreign country. She is there with her husband and her two sons. Her husband dies. She lives in the land of Moab for ten more years, and then all of a sudden her two sons pass away. And all she is left with her two daughter-in-laws. Um, now, I'm not sure how you think about your in-laws. I like my in-laws. But maybe some of you here today could not imagine being stuck with your in-laws, and that's all you had left, okay? I don't want to put that onto you, but I would imagine some of you could probably relate. So here Naomi is. She is a foreigner in a different country. Her two children are dead. Her husband has passed away. And then she has her two daughter-in-laws named Orpah and Ruth. And that's where she is when she enters into the story. And then in the midst of her pain, Naomi, I'm not going to read all of the verses today. What does Naomi do? This woman who is named Pleasant or Delight, what does she do? She commends, she tells Orpah and Ruth to what? To return to her mother's house, return to the land that they are familiar with, to, to stay in Moab. And Naomi is going to return to the nation of Israel. And so at Naomi's behest, the one named Orpah, the Hebrew word meaning neck, okay, these names are interesting, probably because Orpah turned her neck, turned her back on Naomi. Orpah returns to her family to serve other gods, missing out on doing the right thing. Orpah was not willing to risk her life for God for, to return to the nation of Israel. And Orpah, Orpah takes the safe road. When I was thinking about Orpah, and if you ever wonder where Oprah came from, this is actually the case. Okay, her mother misspelled it, believe it or not. At least that's what I'm told, okay. Think about what we can learn from Orpah. Here is this woman who is dedicated to her mother-in-law, who initially return, begins to return to the nation of Israel to support her mother-in-law, but then at the last minute, at the behest of Naomi, she turns her back and returns to her land. Think about what happens to Ruth's story and what happens to Orpah's story. We never hear of Orpah ever again, but because Ruth decided to be a friend, to be a companion, to do the right thing, Ruth, Ruth's legacy lives on. What does Orpah do? She turns back to what is comfortable. She turns back to the nation and to the gods that she is familiar with. Principle number one is this. 
Remaining comfortable often sacrifices God's best on the altar of good. Remaining comfortable often sacrifices God's best on the altar of good. Some of you here today, God is calling you to a new adventure, to trust him on a new quest. And if you are like Orpah, if you turn back now, then you will never know what God truly had in store for you. In the midst of her pain, Naomi pushes Orpah away. Orpah returns to what is familiar. And then uh, the woman named Ruth, or companion, or friend, she makes her choice in verse 16. But Ruth said to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. So what is Ruth saying here? She is willing to forsake what she is familiar with, her gods, to serve and to worship Naomi's God. Where you will die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse. Ruth acts upon her name. Ruth here means friend or companion. Ruth makes the hard choice. So think about this. Naomi's choice is the safer choice. She's going back to the town that she grew up in. She's going back to the town where she met her husband. She's going back to what is familiar. Orpah then also turns to what is familiar. But here Ruth makes the hard decision. She decides to act upon her name and to be an alien in a land. Ruth is a Moabitess. She probably has never lived in the nation of Israel. So she's going to live in a tiny little town called House of Bread to care for this widow. And Ruth has no idea what her life has in store. If you think about this, Ruth is the vehicle of Naomi's redemption. Ruth is the vehicle of the redemption of this story. Some of you here today are like Orpah that you are comfortable and that the Lord may be calling you to know him further. But some of you here today are Ruth, that the Lord is calling you to be a foreigner in a land, calling you to discomfort, calling you to be the vehicle of another person's redemption. Some of you here today, let's just put words and terms to it. The Lord sometimes, some people in here, the Lord is calling you to be a missionary or a foreigner in a land. Can I just speak? Um, let us be careful, no matter the age, let us be careful not to remain too comfortable. You know, I think about my life. The Lord has a sense of humor, and I feel like sometimes the Lord has a sense of irony, okay? One of my greatest fears in life was public speaking, okay? And that's what I do for a living. I was terrified as a child of getting up in front of people. Okay, but I, I'm glad I did what I did. I was uncomfortable. So they arrived back in Bethlehem. The whole town is in stirred. They are shocked to see Naomi's arrival ten years abroad. But why is the Messiah born in a little town called Bethlehem? The decision of Ruth to return with Naomi to a little town called Bethlehem causes the Messiah of the world to be born in that town, fulfilling Micah 5.2. Why? It's because David is a descendant of Boaz and Ruth, 
And who do we know is a descendant of David? It is Jesus, the Messiah. So when we come to Luke chapter 2, Caesar Augustus, what? Issues a census calling on people to return to their hometown. So Joseph, being a descendant of David, Joseph returns to a little town called Bethlehem because he is of the line of Boaz and the Messiah is born in that city. And think about it, the very hills... The very land that Naomi and Ruth returned to are the, is the very hills and very land that the shepherds heard the message of the angels and that the inn where the inn had no vacancy. But when I look at the story of Ruth, this is what I come to a conclusion is this. You have no idea. You have no, you never know how God will use your story. You never know how God will use your story. I mean, did Ruth really think? When she decided to make the hard decision to uproot her life and go be a foreigner in a land of the nation of Israel, did she ever think that she would be one of the women mentioned in Jesus' lineage? That her decision had eternal ramifications. Friends, listen to me. You have no idea how God is using your story. It's only until years later down the road can you look back and see how the Lord used your decisions to give him glory and to minister to other people. But at the time, when you're going through a situation like Naomi, it just seems impossible, it seems difficult, but the Lord stands outside of time. Chapter 1 is the setting and conflict. Chapter 2 is the rising action. What happens in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth meets a wealthy landowner named Boaz, and he is a distant relative of Naomi. And this distant relative is sitting there in the field. He notices Ruth as she gleans in his field. And then the rising action in chapter 2 leads to the climax of the story in chapter 3. What we see in chapter 3 is the promise of redemption. In chapter 3, Boaz is sitting on the threshing floor. He is sitting there winnowing his harvest. Now, if you want to know what the word winnowing, go look it up. I had to look it up. That's what it says in chapter 3. I didn't know what that meant. But Boaz is sitting there in the threshing floor with all of his harvest, winnowing the barley. And Naomi tells Ruth to what? To go find him there and to basically ask for him to be her kinsman redeemer. In the days before life insurance, now this is really where we're going to talk a little bit. In the days before life insurance, when you had a situation like this where a husband dies, the wife would then marry inside the family to the next closest brother to produce an offspring through them to inherit the land that the husband inherited from his forefathers. Okay, if you want to see the process of a kinsman redeemer, look at Genesis chapter 38, but then... The idea of, I didn't realize this, but the idea of a kinsman redeemer, the law, is actually spelled out in Genesis 25, 5 through 10. I would encourage you to flip there. I'm going to read it. It's a little bit lengthy. But if you ever wondered why Boaz does what he does with the sandal at the gate, with the elders at the gate, all this, it all boils down to Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 through 10. When brothers live together and one of them dies, this is in the law. This is the book of Deuteronomy, second giving of the law, what that name means, Deuteronomy. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, 
The wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take to her, take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead brother. So the firstborn by the relative of the brother would, in, would inherit his name. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 7. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish my name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do of his city, shall, shall summon, excuse me. And if he persists, I do not desire to take her, verse 9. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of all elders. And notice this last part. And pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the name of whom his sandal has been removed. So that was lengthy. But the law is clear that the next of kin should marry the brother's wife that died and produce an offspring through her to inherit the land of the dead brother and to provide for the widow. This is the days before Life insurance. But what's the question? Can I, um, it's good to have laws spelled out, okay? But what is always the question? Will they obey the law, okay? So it says on the parkway 60 miles an hour, correct? No. It says 50, right? Okay? The question is not, is the law spelled out, okay? The question is what? Will we obey it? Right? That's the question at the heart of the matter in the book of Ruth. Boaz knows the right thing to do. He knows that he is a descendant of the relative of Naomi. He knows that he's supposed to be Naomi's kinsman redeemer. So what is the question at the heart? Will Boaz obey? Will he actually do what the law says? So then chapter 2 builds to the climax of the middle of chapter 3. The rising action comes. The question is, will Boaz do the right thing? Will he marry Ruth and produce on her behalf, and Naomi's behalf, an heir to inherit the land of Malon, Ruth's dead husband? Verse 13, chapter, verse 12 of chapter 3. This is the climax of the story. Then Boaz said to Ruth, so Ruth and Boaz are on the threshing floor. Ruth approaches Boaz, asks him to be his, her redeemer. And then verse 12 says, now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Wait a second, what does that tell you? Number one, that Boaz wants to do the right thing. He doesn't want to usurp God's laws. That there is a closer relative, but number one. But number two, what does that tell you? That Boaz already looked into the situation. Okay? So he already figured out what? That there is another closer relative. Verse 13, remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you good, 
Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will, as the Lord lives, lie down until morning. This is the climax of the story. This is when we see Boaz. His name needs fleetness, probably because he was quick to act as Ruth's kinsman redeemer. This is the climax of the story. Boaz tells Ruth that he will be her redeemer and produce an offspring on behalf of Malon. But you think, you know, it's easy to look at the story. It's easy to see now how God redeemed it. But at the time, it's difficult for Ruth to see how it would even work out. What I see at the heart of this story is the need that we have to trust the Lord. Because when you go through circumstances, when you go through difficulty, you, you stare at the Lord, you wonder in Psalm 22 verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You wonder what God is up to, but it's only until years later and perhaps on the other side of eternity can you then look back and see how God was working out your story for his greater glory. Chapter 1 is the setting and conflict. Chapter 2 is the rising action. Chapter 3 is the climax. And chapter 4 is the conclusion. So you have in chapter 4... Boaz goes to the city gate and approaches the closest relative, and this is what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate. Why? It's because that's what the law said. You think about the gates in that particular culture. It was agrarian. People lived inside of the city gates and most often harvested outside of the city gates. If you've ever been to Europe, then you know that that is the case. When I visited Germany, you'd have this gigantic castle on a hill, and then you'd have all of this land around it where farmers went. So in back in the day, they would farm, then come into the city for protection at night. So where is the one place you know somebody's going to be every day? The city gates. So Boaz sits there, And verse 1, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke about in chapter 3 was passing by. He is either exiting or entering the gate. So he said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Verse 3, then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who means pleasant, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to to our brother Elimelech, verse 4 of chapter 4. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here, and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. There is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And then what does the closest relative say in verse 4? He says, I will redeem it. But then notice in verse 5, a little bit of a a bait and switch, okay? But then Boaz said, wait a second, okay? (laughs) Now let me tell you what you're signing up for. On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, what did the closest relative say? The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Why? Because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. What is he saying? That I'm willing to buy the piece of land belonging to Malon as long as it what? 
goes to my children, right? Okay, that's what he's saying. So redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. The closest relative desires initially to do what is right as long as he can give it to his own children. Principle number three today is when obeying God, check your as long as. Boaz doesn't have an as long as. He is willing to redeem Ruth, to purchase the land of Malon, to then give it to Ruth's descendants. But the closest relative is willing, but only to a certain point. As long as I can give it to my children. When I looked at the closest relative, I saw a picture of all of us. We, if you're here today and you've come to church for any length of time, then most likely you want to obey the Lord. You most, most of you want to do what is right. Most of us want to read our Bible and to be obedient to the scripture, but we have a caveat as long as. Lord, as long I will go into full-time ministry as long as I don't preach for a living. Okay? That was my story. All right? Lord, I will follow you as long as you don't call me into full-time ministry. Lord, I will follow you as long as I can keep my job. As long as I keep my health. As long as... My question for us is, what is your as long as? God, I will serve you. I will do whatever you ask me to do as long as you don't ask me to do that. What's that in your life? A better way to answer that question if you're still stuck on it is this. If, what is the one thing that the Lord ripped out of your life that you would struggle to serve him? You'd say, I'm out. I'm done. I mean, think about this Naomi woman. She lost her husband, she lost her two sons, and she was stuck with her in-laws. Okay, I like my in-laws, but some of us don't. Okay, you're stuck with your in-laws. And then you have Orpah, meaning next. She turns her back, and then she has this woman named Ruth, a Moabitess, who's going to live in the land of Israel, who doesn't know anybody. And she's going to return to the land and doesn't know if anybody will provide for her. Doesn't know if Boaz will do the right thing. Doesn't know if the closest relative will do the right thing. And Naomi is so bitter about life that she says to the nation of Israel, whenever she walks back, to call me Mara, to call me bitter and angry. What is your as long as? We all have it. We're all tempted to be like the closest relative I will do what is right, but, I mean, think about this theme of doing what is right to the fullest degree. That theme is throughout the scripture, and it's even in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 9. He goes to the one and says, follow me, and what does the guy say? Permit me to first go and bury my father. Another said, permit me first to to say goodbye to those at home. The closest relative isn't willing to obey God to the fullest. But here Boaz is. 
He proves himself to be a righteous man. How? What, what, I, what I find amazing about this story is that Boaz knows the scripture. He knows exactly the process laid out for him in Deuteronomy chapter 25. That he's going to go to the city gates and have a sandal exchange. And not only does Boaz know the right thing, but then he does the right thing. Many of us know the scripture. But the question is not if we know the scripture, right? What does it say in James chapter 1? That we obey and apply the scripture. But then how does the story, so we have the climax of the story in chapter 3. We have the kinsman redeemer coming on the scene in chapter 4. And then this is the conclusion of the story. So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife and went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and to give birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has left you without a redeemer, who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in all of Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. Notice what he said. It's the redeemer of Naomi for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son shall be born to Naomi. So they named him Obed, who is the father of Jesse, the father of David. The overall principle of this story of the book of Ruth is this, in my opinion, that God's redemption is beyond sight. When you're going through something in life, it is difficult to understand how God will redeem it but waits for those who trust in him. What does it say in Romans chapter 8, verse 28? All things work together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. That God takes your story, that somehow, some way, he will redeem it for those who take refuge in the shadow of his wings. Ruth is a microcosm of all of our lives, that God stands outside of time, seeing your beginning and your end and all of the events in the middle. And he's taking the stories and events of your life to paint a portrait of it to his glory and to your redemption. But the question is, I have, is will we trust him? Will we trust the Lord to redeem our story when we do not understand Allow me to close with a story. Uh, about six years ago, I went to uh, Istanbul, Turkey. Now, anybody ever been to Istanbul before? Anybody ever been there? No, Istanbul. Okay, I've got a couple. If you haven't gone to Istanbul, it's a little bit out of the way, um, and it's a little bit over over an ocean, uh, but you should go. It's a really cool city. Um, and we went to this place in in Istanbul called Hagia Sophia. Anybody ever been there? Okay. It was the, the church in the Byzantine Empire, okay? The church was built in like 500 A.D. And I believe it's the largest dome, open dome in the world until the Astrodome. And when you walk into this church called Hagia Sophia, the floor is literally made of layers of marble. 
I mean, the marble is about three inches thick, and the floor is marble, the walls are marble, and then you walk through the foyer, and you enter into the main cathedral, and you stare up at this gigantic dome that is hundreds of feet above your head. And then covered on the wall are little mosaics. And if you go up to those mosaics, you'll see little pieces of green and black and gold. And then you step back and you see the picture as a whole. If you only look at those tiny little squares, then you struggle to see the big picture. But it took an intelligent designer to take those little bitty squares, about a centimeter in width, and to put them together to make a portrait of Christ. Friends, that is your life. That as you live life, each day is a little piece, a little event, a little piece of black or a little piece of gold or a little piece of green. And when we go day by day, It is difficult for us to see how God is redeeming our story. But then God takes all of those events, both good and bad, and he puts it together into a beautiful mosaic to his redemption of your life and his love to you. But the question is not, will he do that? The question is this, will we be like Ruth? Will we trust him? Will we trust him with the decisions and the difficulties in life? Or will we let our as long as hold us back from truly following him? We must trust the Lord for he only knows the mosaic that he is creating with all of our stories to his love and to his redemption. God's redemption is beyond immediate sight but waits for those who take refuge in the shadow of his wings. So trust him with faith and not sight. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you uh, just that we're back in the sanctuary. I thank you for this church. I thank you for uh, just the faithfulness of the people. And Lord, I thank you for all the volunteers, first off, that really put this together and allowed us to come back. I thank you also for the elders and deacons that serve here. And just, uh, Lord, I just pray that we would trust you, that we would not get carried away or not get discounted or not get discouraged by the little pieces of discouragement that we face every day, but that we would rely on you to paint a beautiful mosaic of our lives. All things work together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. And our Lord, our job is to trust you and to obey you by faith and not by sight. And Lord, thank you for this morning. I thank you for Calvary Bible Church. And I just... uh, I just thank you for your redemption that you give us through your son, Jesus Christ. And for those that haven't believed in you, him, I pray that they would trust in him with their salvation. Thank you for today. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.